Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our meditation for this morning is recorded in the 8th chapter of the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, beginning with the 19th verse. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead to bury their own dead. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us to your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Some might say I'm a little bit of a history nerd. My idea of a vacation is dragging my family to see historical sites and the graves of famous people. When I posted pictures of our last vacation, all my friends could do was comment about how wonderful my family had to be to endure all of this. Before I became a pastor, my wife and I went backpacking through Europe, actually for 40 days and 40 nights, it was quite ominous. When we were in Paris, I saw the graves of such interesting people as Peter Abelard, the great scholastic theologian, Napoleon Bonaparte, and the rock singer Jim Morrison. But one stop really took me out of back. I walked into the church where the Enlightenment philosopher, René Descartes, was buried. Now when I walked into the church, I stepped by the gift shop and I asked, where specifically Descartes was buried in this church? The answer I got was quite interesting. They said to me, yes, we accept both MasterCard and Visa. <laughs> kind of tells you what they think about Americans, doesn't it? In our text for today, Jesus seems to have a misconception about discipleship. He doesn't seem to recognize how hard it is for people to accept him as the Savior and for them to follow him. In fact, he seems downright cold to these two would-be disciples. But is that really the case? Is there something that Jesus doesn't understand about discipleship? As you probably could expect, I am going to argue that it's actually us that are suffering from a misconception about discipleship. Let us then take a good hard look at this case study in discipleship. The first would-be disciple was a scribe. Now these folks were typically quite hostile to Jesus. So the fact that he was volunteering to follow him should have made Jesus ecstatic, right? But that wasn't the case. For unlike us, Jesus can read the heart. He knows the underlying motives behind each and every one of our actions. For you see, this scribe saw all the miracles that Jesus had performed just prior to this text. 
he saw the reputation and the following that Jesus was garnering. And he thought, maybe I could gain a reputation and a following if I become one of Jesus' disciples. And who knows? Maybe I'll learn to perform a miracle or two. The fact that the scribe called him teacher, though, was a dead giveaway. For only Jesus' enemies and false disciples ever call him teacher in the Gospel of Matthew. This is why Jesus tells him that discipleship isn't about personal glory or good times. In fact, Jesus responds to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head. Truth be told, I think many of us have forgotten that the normal state of the church is persecution. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand up for our rights. In fact, St. Paul does that exact same thing in the scriptures. However, it seems that we're far more willing to stick it to our persecutors and deter the other cheek. It seems that we are far more willing to gloat when those anti-Christian elites finally get their comeuppance rather than picking up our cross and following Jesus. Jesus says, a student is not above his master. And if they crucified him, should we really expect anything less? Now you're probably thinking, okay, I get that. But what about this uncommitted disciple? Jesus seems kind of harsh to him. I mean, didn't Elijah let Elisha say goodbye to his parents before following him? Doesn't Jesus, a little later in the scriptures, actually reaffirm the fourth commandment in the face of the Pharisees and the scribes? Once again, Jesus can see what we cannot. We don't know if this man's father had just passed away, if he was imminently passing away, if he was awaiting a sometimes customary second burial, or if he was just blowing Jesus off until his parents finally died. All we know is that he did not fear, love, and trust in God above all things. In fact, he made his parents, or more likely the excuse that they were affording him, to be first and foremost in his life. This is why Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Might come as a surprise. But seminary professors can make Jesus second in their lives too. In fact, sometimes we put aside our personal devotions to get a big theological project done because that's going to help more people, or so we think in our heads. At other times, we don't spend time doing real biblical theology and instead chase after answers to questions that are speculative at best. And of course, sometimes we can exaggerate the needs of our students so that we don't have to put on our own time with the Lord and personal devotion that much-needed time that we need that personal examination and to be refilled with God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Now, if seminary professors can even misuse theology 
to make Jesus second in their lives? I bet you all the creative people in this room could think of a whole lot more creative ways to make Jesus second in their lives. There's one more misconception about this text that needs to be addressed. It was commonplace amongst ancient philosophers and would-be rabbis to pick their own teachers. They often did so on the basis of who was going to give them the most bang for their buck. But that's not the way Jesus works. Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. If we cannot choose to invite Jesus into our hearts, then we cannot choose to follow him. Only he can choose and empower us to follow him. But fortunately, that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. But before he can do that, he must undo all the counterfeit discipleship and downright hostility that we have shown to our God. This he did by bearing the cross in his life. For think about it. He suffered a manger for his very first bed. He spent his earliest years as a refugee in Egypt. And when he died, he only had clothes to his name. Or as St. Paul puts it, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Throughout his life, he always put the needs of others before his very own. Even those living on the margins, on the periphery of society, could never escape his gracious attention. And in the end, he took upon himself our sin, our death, and our hell. And he gives us an exchange, and a most wonderful exchange, an exchange that Luther calls the Freilich of Exel, the joyful exchange. He gives us his forgiveness, life, and salvation. In fact, St. Paul puts it this way, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And he did that for you and for me here today. If he has done all of this and chose us as his own in holy baptism, or wherever you first heard God's word, you can rest assured that you have been called and empowered to discipleship today. In fact, he's doing it again. Through these very words you hear preached today, he is calling you and he is empowering you to follow him. As the head of his spiritual body, the church, he has reconstituted us so that he really is first and foremost in our lives. Thus, wherever the head leads the body is sure to follow. This is why want and shame and suffering are unavoidable for the Christian. For Jesus says, if the world hates you, it hated me before it hated you. But for all of the temporal glory and riches that we forego in this life, know that we will experience them tenfold in the life to come. And if you have eyes to see it, and he, ears to hear it, 
you know that we are already beginning to have a foretaste of those heavenly gifts. For who else but the Christian can have that peace which the world cannot understand, that peace that surpasses all understanding, that peace that keeps us centered when the world is going mad, that peace that will finally reach its full consummation in the new Jerusalem above, where we will feast with all of our brothers and sisters who have gone before as the sons and daughters of the eternal God, the very God of the universe. Until that time then, follow him. To be sure, your old sinful flesh will sometimes get the better of you. But as the body of Christ, we have been reconstituted in him, or we're being reconstituted in him through the means of grace. So follow him. After all, he does not give us, he doesn't leave us without the means to do so. In fact, he gives us that same power through his very word. In fact, Martin Luther once said, that Christ does not find, but he creates that which is pleasing to him in us. So follow him. Once again, he has empowered us through these very words to do so. For forensic justification is not a mere semantics game. That declaration that you have been declared innocent is not some cosmic fiction. For as St. Paul puts it, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Why then do we follow him? Why then do we love him? We love him, as St. John says, because he first loved us. Amen.